Hi, I'm Nina Davidar. Our Bible reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The word of the Lord. All right. We're going to look at God's word again. John chapter 20. Nina just read it for us. We're looking at a little section of the resurrection narrative, and we're going to hold this together in five words today. Okay, so five words. Your first word that you need to remember is first. First word is first. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jewish leadership, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now what I want us to see as we're looking at this narrative today and how we're holding this together is that John, the gospel writer here, is famous for, or he's known for, if you read the gospel of John, for linking back to Genesis. So we get this at the very beginning of the gospel of John when John describes not the birth narrative of Jesus, but the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And, and the Word made all things, and then the Word became flesh. And he's talking about the pre-incarnate Son of God creating all things and then becoming human. And we're meant to evoke the creation narrative, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the whole rest of the way. And we get this in some of the things like light and darkness being played off of each other and some of the other elements in the Gospel of John. What we're getting right now from the beginning of the Easter story is the new creation. So let me read to give us a, a little bit of a, a backdrop of Genesis chapter 1, which is the backdrop to the Gospel of John. In the beginning... God. So in the very beginning, God. That's the starting point. God. God shows up. He creates the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 3, God speaks. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then verse 5, it goes on down to say, God called it day and night, and there was evening and there was morning on the first day. And then we jump ahead to John chapter 20. And notice what's happening. When did the resurrection take place? What day of the week was it? A Sunday, right? In Jewish understanding, which was built off of that Genesis 1 narrative, this is the eighth day of the week, or the first day of the week, depending on how you're looking at it. So in the beginning, God creates, that's Genesis 1, right? By the end of the week, Genesis 6, he creates man, and on the seventh day, God rested. In the story of Jesus' passion narrative, it's on the sixth day when he's crucified, the same day that Pilate says, behold the man, when Jesus is the man representing all humanity created on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, God rested. And in the passion narrative, he's resting in the tomb. Hmm. And then on the eighth day, something happens. It's new creation. New creation is happening. On the very first day of the week, on the very first day of the week, God shows up again, 
And when he speaks, he says, peace be with you. The resurrection of Jesus, John wants us to see this, is is something different is happening. Eternity is breaking in. And God is right there in the room with us. He's shown up in physical presence. And it's the reminder for the disciples and for us as we read this narrative that this life is not all there is. The things that we see, that the years that we spend on this, on this life is not all there is. There is more going on even right behind our eyes. The idea that the, the descriptions are often Jesus walked through a wall here, but he, it doesn't say that. It just says, and then they saw him. Almost like, you know, if, if you walk into a room and somebody's sitting in there and you're not cognizant of them, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, didn't see you here. God is saying through Jesus resurrected to the disciples, I'm right here. You just need to peel back your eyes a little bit. Something new is happening. Jesus' resurrection is the first act of the new creation, God's intention to restore all things as they were intended. And he's inviting us, inviting us through the disciples, to new creation life. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul talks about it when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The new creation that is birthing the resurrection is what God wants to do in each of our lives. And the invitation of that first Easter is live now as citizens of that eternal kingdom of God. Our first word is first. Our second word, therefore, is peace. Good. You guys are tracking with me. Where do you guys are? Second word is peace, because Jesus says, peace be with you. And that peace be with you is repeated. So it's not just a greeting, shalom or peace be with you was a common greeting in Hebrew wording, it was Hebrew language. But by the repetition of it here, it's meant to have a theological thing going on. What Jesus is saying is, I'm now arrived as the Lord of the universe, and I'm bestowing on you a benediction of peace. And the Hebrew understanding behind that is this word shalom, we've talked about it. Shalom means wholeness, completion, flourishing, harmony in every possible way. And the only time that humanity has ever experienced shalom is in the Garden of Eden, before the fall. We see it especially in Genesis 2, where they're, they're, they're there with whole and flourishing lives, physically, emotionally, spiritually, with one another, with God, with the creation itself. And the beauty of it is in Genesis 2.25, kind of the, the high point of it, is in the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, completely exposed to one another, and with no fear, no shame, no guilt. And the same was true with God. No fear, no shame, no guilt, because they were in shalom. Wholeness and reconciliation with God, peace with God, peace with each other, peace with themselves, the sort of thing none of us know except in glimpses. And what we live in instead is what happens afterwards. The opposite of shalom is what happens in Genesis 3 when sin enters in. Is they're hiding themselves for fear and shame. They're hiding from God for fear and guilt. And then they blame each other. That doesn't sound like harmony. (laughs) Sounds like America. (laughs) 
But Jesus comes in that resurrection moment and says, peace be with you. And he's extending the shalom of God from Eden into their lives, saying, I want you to repartake of what you had back then by being reconciled and having peace with God so you can have peace internally and peace with one another. In 2 Corinthians 5, the rest of that section, it goes on to describe how we've become new creation. All this is from God, it says in verse 18 and following. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's peacemaking, right? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, creating peace, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of, for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What Jesus does through his death on the cross is reconciles us to God. Yes, in sin and in the fall, we were pushed out. Our, we're hiding and we're in shame. We have guilt, but God through Christ reconciles us. And the opportunity is not only to be at peace with God, where he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but for you to therefore have peace internally with yourself and with one another. And then to be an agent of reconciliation and peace in this world. That's what we are called to be, to live out the resurrection joy of having God's peace in us. As Jesus says, my peace I give to you, now go and give it to others. Be an ambassador for peace because you have my peace in you. Our first word is first. Our second is peace. Our third is sending. You guys were right there, I know. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. After he says, peace, and then he says, and when he had said these things, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What we're getting here, again, echoing back to Genesis, is we're getting back to the creation mandate, as it's called. So in Genesis 1, we get a couple of descriptions of what God has done in creating us. You're made in my image, and then, and then God says to humanity, or the, the declaration in Genesis 1, the theological declaration is, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and have dominion over it. And then in Genesis 2, it's a separate description of the same events where it says that God places the man in the garden to tend the garden. Okay, so the description there is what is called the creation mandate. It's basically like each one of us as human beings, regardless of whether you believe in God or not, have been created for a purpose of bringing order to this earth. To tend the garden basically means literally to go from uh, something that is not fruitful to making it fruitful. Or if they were doing what they were supposed to do, which is to filling that earth without sin and tending the garden, they should have been growing the Garden of Eden until it covered the whole earth to take the desert on the far side outside of the garden, to take the jungle over here and turn it into the garden. If they had been tending the garden, and we do that in our work, in our relationships, in the way that we live out our role as human beings in this world, the vice regents with God, that we carry out the purposes that God created all humanity to do, to move from chaos to order, from nothing to beauty, from nobody to families and communities and societies. We're living out 
what we're called to do in God's creation mandate. But then with his disciples, Jesus gives a new creation mandate. The new creation mandate, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's it. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So then we should ask this question. How did the Father send Jesus? What was Jesus' job, his role? Why did he come? That's all you have to do. How did God the Father send the Son? Incarnationally, right? The beginning of John, God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, becomes man, humanity. In other words, one of the ways that God the Father sent the Son and that we are called to live that out is incarnationing or presence. That means literally like what it says in uh, the, the message, which is Eugene Peterson's translation, is essentially the God of the universe took up residence and moved into the neighborhood. And that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to actually be physically present with one another, to actually be face-to-face with one another. And that's been part of the huge challenge of COVID, is it pushed us all away from being physically present with one another. We got separated, kids are studying on a screen, and we live in a digital media world as well, right? That's where our communication is done. That's where our bold statements are made. That's where we get all of our input, not in conversations with actual human beings, but in a digital media world with cable news or Twitter or with Instagram or whatever platform we're using. And that is an inhuman way of interacting. God the Father sent his son physically And we're called to that, to be present with one another. And the the description of Jesus' incarnation tells us two things. One, place matters. Place matters. Where you live, your physical presence, your proximity in a work, in school, the people you're sitting next to today, place matters, and relationships matter. And that's what we're called into in Jesus' incarnation, to live out what Jesus was sent to do. Secondly, in the new creation, or how Jesus was uh, sent by the Father, is he was sent with a particular purpose, and it was to build a kingdom. When Jesus comes, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 4, the very first sermon that he preaches is in his hometown, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And the passage from Isaiah 61 says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind. God's new creation is breaking in through Jesus as the kingdom of God is unfolding in his life. And what does he go about doing? He goes about preaching the good news, welcoming in the poor, casting out people bound by demons, casting out the demons, and giving sight to the blind. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he gives the kingdom manifesto, as it's sometimes been called. This is what I have come to do and what I am coming to establish and what you are called to live out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You've heard it said, but I say, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Love your enemies. Seek first the kingdom of God. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth, in my life as in heaven. 
That's what Jesus was doing while he was here. God the Father sent the Son to bring about, to inaugurate his kingdom, to bring reconciliation and forgiveness. And that's essentially what he's calling us to in verse 23 when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, that we are meant to be the people that carry on the work of Jesus reconciling the world to God. He's already done that work, but they, they see it, they experience it through us, the church. How did you hear about the gospel? Because somebody told you. The church was bringing that to bear in our lives. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. I was incarnate. I brought the kingdom. And then ultimately, what did Jesus come to do? To die on a cross. So if the Father sent the Son to die on the cross, and Jesus says, I'm sending you as the Father sent me. Guess what? That's what we're invited to as well. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me, right? The cross is the emblem of, of aim, the symbol of all we're after and all we're built on in Christianity. And it, it is a radically different set of goals and values than our cultures, than any cultures. You know, we talk about being a more loving culture, but look at how the Bible defines love. The Bible defines love this way. So we talk about like brotherly love. You know, the C.S. Lewis did the four loves a number of years back, and he talks about these four Greek terms. One of those Greek terms is philia or philios, which is brotherly love, friendship, if you would. What did Jesus say the, the epitome of friendship is? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Christianity redefines friendship not on the basis of getting something out of it, but of dying to self for the other person. How about eros, romance, sex? How does our culture define it? How does the Bible define it? It's in the definition of a marriage, right? And in Ephesians, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? by dying for her. Okay, husbands, you want to have eros, romance? Die for your wife. The cross, that's the definition. And of course, agape, God love. This is love, John tells us in 1 John. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die on the cross. It's the whole description in Philippians 2 of giving up everything for the sake of others. You could sum it up this way in the way that um, John Guerra, who's a singer-songwriter, wrote in this song, Citizens, the very final line is talking about the way the world defines things versus the way the kingdom of God does. And this is the de definition he gives is, love has a million disguises, but winning is simply not one. In the kingdom of God, love has many disguises, but winning is simply not one. It involves dying, giving up. First is first, second is peace, third is sending, fourth is spirit. Jesus breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is an echo of Genesis 2, right? God forms the man. He forms the man and he breathes into his nostrils, same word, essentially, the breath of life. And that word breath 
in the Hebrew is the word ruach. You guys know this. I mean, you guys know your Hebrew, I know. Um, ruach is both breath and spirit. It's the same word. Breath and spirit are the same thing. But in Genesis 2, it is the breath of, of life as in physical life as well as being made into the image of God. It's life not just in physical, I'm alive now, but also in distinction from the animals. The animals, God doesn't breathe into them and give them his life. But in John chapter 20, Jesus, Jesus breathes on the disciples, reenacting Genesis 2, saying, I'm recreating you. I'm renewing you. Something new is happening here. And he's breathing on them, and the Holy Spirit is going to be birthed in them. They're moving from regular life to divine life because the Holy Spirit is God in us. And there's this whole beautiful narrative of dwelling in the Bible. If I was going to trace it from the beginning to the end, it goes like this. In the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God dwells in Eden with Adam and Eve. He's with them, physically interacting with them in a sense. He's spirit, they're physical, they can talk to God face to face. But in the expulsion from the garden, they're pushed out, and they're pushed out from God. They are forsaken. And then God begins to appear in specific places, specifically in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it is a holy place. You do not go near it. God is dwelling with his people, and you approach it through sacrifices, but that's where God is. Where the temple in Jerusalem was, that's where God was. And then, on that first Christmas morning, God says, I'm moving from the temple to being present with you physically. And Jesus is walking around with them as the dwelling place of God with them physically for 30-some years, and he's right there with them, God no longer in the temple, but with them in physical form. And then in this moment, he breathes on them and says, okay, I'm going to ascend, but now I'm going to take up residence in you, in you, in you. The Holy Spirit is God dwelling in us until the day in the new creation when God is all in all. But for now, you and I, you and I are walking temples, walking Edens. We are the presence of God in this world. In Genesis 1, it says that we're made in the image of God. All of us, that means every single person is uniquely designed with equal dignity and worth and value. But in Romans 8 and in other places, the description is not just made in the image of God, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. So every one of us, by being made in the image of God, has equal value and dignity, regardless of ability, skin color, achievement, intelligence. Whether you live a half a day in the womb or 120 years on this earth, no matter what you've done, good or bad, all with equal dignity and value. But then we, in Christ, are called to be conformed to Christ. God's design for us is that we are walking Jesus's. So how do you do that? According to this, it's not effort, it's not strategy, it's communion. Communion with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The Spirit that gives you faith and leads you in assurance and guides you and empowers you. So the way that we look more and more like Christ, live out his kingdom purpose for, for us, is in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So we spend time listening to God developing and deepening our relationship with God. We can come up with missional strategies or ways to deal with our indwelling sin, but really it's commune with God, spend time with him, 
Feed on him. Lean into him. Let the Holy Spirit work in you. And through you, transform the world. N.T. Wright sums this up in his book, Jesus and the, the, the Resurrection of the Son of God. He writes this, Jesus breathes on the disciples as the Creator breathed into human nostrils at the beginning. They are equipped to be the people through whom forgiveness of sins becomes a reality in the world. They are thereby sent into the world as the Father had sent Jesus to Israel to implement thereby their witness to him the unique and decisive events of his ministry, death, and resurrection. Put it in more simple terms, where is God seen in this world? How is God experienced by people? How is he usually heard? The number one way is you. Or to be more specific, it's our fifth word, yins. So the English language doesn't have a you plural, right? If you're in England, you'd say you lot. If you're in parts of the north, you say yous, right? And if you're in the south, you say y'all. Um, this word is the superior word. Um, it's a, because it's shorter, like y'all could have like three syllables depending on who's saying it. Yins is just one, it ends. Yins is actually a Pittsburgh thing and, and from the kind of Appalachian areas of the U.S. where it kind of was Scottish-Irish being brought down and then shrunk again. It was you ones that became you ones and became yins. We're going to use it for now. Just bear with me. When Jesus calls the disciples, he goes to them and he says in verse 21, peace be with yins, right? And as the Father sent me, I am sending yins. In other words, the disciples in that moment are gathered in the upper room. Ten of the twelve are there. Thomas is not there and Judas is dead. And some of the women are there as well from what we're guessing on, on the descriptions of everything. It's the evening, evening of the resurrection. Mary had seen Jesus. We talked about her last week, Mary Magdalene. They're all gathered there. Jesus shows up in their presence and then he commissions them collectively. He breathes on them collectively. He appears to them collectively. Together, they are called and commissioned by Jesus. And as a result of that, they move from hiding and fear to boldness and transforming the world as a small band of really kind of village idiots because God has given them the power through his spirit in them individually, corporately. In Genesis 2, God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. You and I need community. We are made to be a part of the new creation community, the church. Jesus said it very clearly in Matthew 5, 14. Yins are the light of the world, he said. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In a fragmented, politicized, sexualized, and very, 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 very lonely culture, there is a deep need for belonging. There's a deep need for community. And as a result, there's a deep need for counter-cultural communities. And that's what we're called to be, collectively, together. A counter-cultural community. In a culture of autonomy and independence, we're called to be a counter-culture of commitment and vulnerability with one another. 
And honestly, the deeper you commit to any person, any community, the more vulnerable you, you'll be. There's a reason why people um, who are, are children of divorce are more anxious about getting married because they've seen the damage and they're afraid of being vulnerable. They've seen the evil that can happen with, with two human beings, right? To commit is to be vulnerable. But to be a place of commitment and vulnerability is what this world needs. In a culture of vanity and hubris, we are called to be a countercultural community of humility and generosity with one another because we live by a gospel of grace. Our gospel of grace says that you and I, you and I enter the kingdom of God by the grace of God, not because of anything we've done. You aren't here, you didn't understand God, you didn't believe in Jesus because you're smarter than other people. It's simply by the grace and mercy of God. And because it's by grace that we are saved, we are humble. We know we're deeply sinful, as sinful as anybody else. We need Jesus as much as anybody else. But we also have the confidence to be generous with others because we've been assured of God's love for us. A counterculture of humility and generosity in a world of just meanness. And in a culture of fear, we're called to be a countercultural community of courage and hope. And I do find this hard. I find this hard sometimes as I look at the world. And, you know, as you get older, you kind of think, oh, it's getting worse and worse. But the whole Holy Spirit was moving in those disciples. It was worse and worse for them, and they had no fear. And they had ultimate hope because the Holy Spirit was in them, and they were communing with God consistently, and they believed Jesus was raised from the dead. He was Lord. No matter what happened in the world, no matter what happened in their lives, Christ was risen, and Christ was coming again and Christ had won. In a culture of performance and achievement, we are called to be a countercultural community of grace where we and anyone else find and experience forgiveness and healing and the life of the risen Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we end our time today reflecting on your word. Lead us in the hope of the resurrection by the power of your spirit to be Christ in the world, filled with your peace and extending your peace to others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.